This interview contains sensitive and graphic descriptions. You may not want to listen with children around. Hi, I'm Meridian Baldacci. I'm Director of Strategy at Family Policy Alliance. We're here at the inaugural SOCON Con, the Social Conservative Conference. And I am joined by Chloe Cole, who's an 18-year-old detransitioner from California. Hi, Chloe. It's good to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'd love to just jump right in and tell your story. I know you've been traveling all over the country telling this story, but um, maybe give us a synopsis and then we'll kind of we'll kind of dig into it from there. Yeah, so I'm an 18-year-old detransitioned woman from Central Valley, California, and um, I transitioned as a minor starting, uh, starting at 12 mm-hmm. with social transition. And then at 13, I went on testosterone and puberty blockers, and at 15, when, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I underwent a double mastectomy, and I stopped transitioning at 16. And you've been very courageously sharing that story ever since. I really appreciate that. I, I kind of want to back up because I think a lot of people hear the stories of um, people who are transitioning kind of as they're in the thick of it. Um, but back us up to when you got a gender dysphoria diagnosis when you were nine, is, is that right? Eight, nine years old? No, I was, a, uh, I was 12. 12. Okay, you're 12. So talk, tell us about that, de-tran- or that, that gender dysphoria diagnosis and what led up to that. Yeah, so... I started feeling like I wasn't actually a girl um, around the age of 11 or 12. And um, I just decided that it just it just made sense that all my problems, like socially and um, with other people, with my family, internally were because I was actually a boy this whole time. And so I started to cut my hair shorter. I started to wear more boys clothing. And uh, I switched between a few names, but eventually I decided like, I wanna let my family know and I wanna actually go down this route of treatment. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would have to get my parents involved. So Mm -hmm. I, uh, I came out to them in a letter that I wrote, and uh, I just left it on the table for them to read. Yeah, I, it was it, it would be kind of a scary conversation to uh, to just start up, and uh, I wasn't super close to my parents then, so it was a little bit intimidating, and I wanted to allow them a little bit to think on their response to it, and. Um, they didn't want to be supportive of me, but they didn't really understand like, what was going on, what was making me feel this way. Mm-hmm. And so they sent me to a therapist. They wanted to get professional help. Mm-hmm. And their, their, I guess their expectation, their expectation would be that they would find out where these feelings would come from, and then they would, uh, they would just wait and see what would happen until I was. Uh, I'd say at least 18, and that's that's what they wanted. They wanted, they didn't want me to to transition medically at such a young age. They wanted to leave to me when I would be a, a legal adult. But that's not what happened. Um, they, I mean, as soon as I, pretty much as soon as I walked in that appointment, I was just, yeah. I was called by my preferred name, and uh, yeah, they... Not even questioned? No, no, not really. I mean... Eventually, I was given like a questionnaire for my uh, 
from my gender dysphoria diagnosis, but it wasn't very thorough. Hmm. And I don't really think now that diagnosis was inaccurate mm-hmm. necessarily, but well, and I, I definitely went down the, ro- the wrong course of treatment. And, it, and, that's, and that's a very real thing. And I think that's something that mm-hmm. it's important that we talk about is, is that gender dysphoria right. is a real thing and people do need real compassion and help. Um, and I think it's important that, that we talk about that. Was the idea of all the medical interventions already in your mind when you walked into that therapist's office, or was that something that kind of grew over time there? Yeah, I mean, it already was. Like, I knew, like, from the information that I gathered online, the research I did on it, it was presented as the only means of treating gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was treated the same way by the doctors. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. They didn't give us any other option. Wow. So as, as you're in this therapist's office then, I assume they just kept pushing you toward that route. That was... Not necessarily pushing me, mm-hmm. but um, I was the one pushing for the treatment mm-hmm. because I believed that it was the only way forward. Yeah. And um, it was really, it was patient-led. Which I can't really think of any other course of treatment. No. Especially like in terms of uh, like mental health. Yeah, especially yeah. and, and, and uh, uh, all the more so with a minor when it's when you're 11, 12, 13 years old and I mean, you add that layer on to it. It's, it's really unbelievable. I couldn't smoke. I couldn't buy alcohol no. or, uh, or a pack of cigarettes or marijuana or get a tattoo or drive a car then. But you could, I could pursue this transition. Make a choice that would uh, permanently affect my health, right? Wow, wow. So talk us through then, once you actually started going through the interventions, just what, what that was like. I don't know that everyone understands what that course of treatment or interventions is. Yeah, so after I was diagnosed, I started pushing my parents more and more to getting me on these treatments. And they pushed back because they Good. didn't want me to. They... Rightfully so, they thought that I wasn't mature enough to make that kind of decision yet. And they didn't want that responsibility on their hands either. They wanted it to be my choice when I would be old enough to make it. But they start talking about this uh, with uh, with either the gender specialist or the therapist. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, they weren't given any other option. They were just, they were fed lies actually. They weren't that. Uh, they were told about the high desistance rate amongst children who present with gender dysphoria. And um, they were just told like, well, children already know what they are from a very young age. And um, the regret rate is less than one or 2%, but if you don't allow her to transition, then she'll be even more regretful and she may commit suicide. So they gave them the ultimatum of, would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? And how were you processing all of, all of that? I mean, were you, you did well, that drive what you were actually feeling or? Um, I mean, not necessarily, but I didn't, I don't believe I was actually in there to, to hear this because I don't remember this being said at all. Wow. I think they were just an appointment with wow. my parents and my parents alone. Wow. So I don't think I would I would have been there to 
dispute that. But even if I was, I don't know, like, I mean, it's hard to think so far back, but it's like, how would I have reacted to that? Like, if I added that, I would have been terrified. Yeah. Yeah. If my parents pushed back any further mm. after me hearing that, I would have hated them. Yeah. I probably would have. I'm sure you've looked back a thousand times since and run the what ifs, you know, what, what, what if this had gone differently and, and kind of in that, what if, what, what happens, what, what is something you, you wish someone would have said, or, or is, is something, you know, now as you're looking at other people going through this, you, you just, you just want to say to someone who's in that position. I don't know. It's kind of a difficult question because I was, I had received a little bit of pushback gently from my parents and uh, a little bit from friends, quite a bit from friends actually, and from my older brothers. But I really believe that there was, this was the only path forward in that other people just didn't understand that they're ignorant of, of the reality of the situation. But well, I feel like I just shouldn't have been allowed to medically transition at all yeah and that I should have just been allowed to to grow out of it yeah well and, and you were told you were not only like you said told that that was the answer and told that that was the solution but you're right it was available you know it, it's when, so, when something's off the table you listed things that minors just can't do those things are just off the table for minors to do that's not those are things that, right. that we just don't let it's minors do an option for kids. Yes. Yes. You know, you don't have doctors or, or other adults giving minors cigarettes or um, or alcohol on and on. You can go on with the list. Hopefully not. <laughs> we, we hope that's not happening. But those are things that, that are just off the off the table. And this should be the same for minors. Yeah. So, so keep keep walking us through then. You eventually got to the place where you were doing, you, you were thinking about the surgery. Yeah, so uh, after they told that to my parents, they, they were shocked. And I mean, they didn't think that, they, they didn't want me to die. I was their daughter. I was their youngest. And the only one that my parents had together and they didn't want to lose me. And I mean, on top of that, I was not the easiest kid to raise. Um, I mean, I was diagnosed with a learning disability. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was not very emotionally regulated as a kid, and I was very prone to outbursts, tantrums, and I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. Mm-hmm. And my parents weren't really getting the help they needed most for me from either the school or my doctors. I mean, I had an IEP plan in place that uh, my school just didn't follow. They didn't, uh, they really failed to accommodate me and my parents. I mean, I remember my middle school telling my dad, like, we're here to accommodate your child, not you. And that was just the general attitude that they had with me. Wow. And, um, I had a teacher, several teachers actually, over the course of a few years, uh, told my parents like, hey, I think your kid is autistic. And they told me to, they told them to get me screening. Wow. But um, when they tried to screen me, um, you know, it was just this young, inexperienced doctor 
and she was like, nope, she's not autistic. She's, she's, uh, pretty verbally and socially developed for age. She's, she's too smart. Like there's, there's no way. Wow. As, as if those things can, yeah. can can't coexist. <laughs> and the funny thing wow. is most high functioning autistic people are generally smarter than very smart. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, they were willing to diagnose me with, uh, with ADHD though. And, uh, Disruptive behavior disorder, whatever that means. <laughs> wow. Um, and then they started medicating me at 10. But uh, Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I think I'm glad that you're talking about that because that is so common that that children who have gender dysphoria also have other other often behavioral things or other mental health things going on as well. Yeah. And and so often that's shoved under the rug because we're so focused on the gender dysphoria. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, uh I was referred to a uh, an endocrinologist a few months afterward, mm-hmm. and uh, the first one I saw said, "I am not putting on these treatments. Like you're really young, mm-hmm. and I don't know what this can do to your brain development." Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear that from any other doctor. Wow. The second, no, no other doctor. Yeah. No one else. Wow. I never heard those concerns ever again. Wow. And I mean, you probably went through a lot of people in that process too. Who I would have had the opportunity to say, to speak into that. Well, I only saw two endocrinologists. Okay. Wow. That's, that's more than, that, more than enough. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. The second one, uh, it's hard to remember so far back because I was, I was 13 years old. Yeah. But. I think just after like one or two appointments, she put me on blockers and uh, wow. I just went through my um, my medical records and I couldn't find any forms for the blockers like I did with the testosterone. Wow. So there, there's a chance that she didn't, just didn't give any forms and just... Just put you straight on. Yeah. And wow. uh, the side effects were discussed, but... Uh, the problem is with all these treatments is that they didn't really give like a comprehensive list of side effects, wow. how this might affect me. And I mean, no matter what was what was being talked through, as a kid, I just wouldn't be able to really understand what any of it what meant. Like, uh, Kim, like after uh, after my first blocker shot, I had another appointment for uh, getting on testosterone, and. Uh, I was asked, like, do you understand that this may cause you to experience vaginal atrophy? Wow. And of course, at 12, 13 years old, yeah. I was like, I mean, I read about it online. I was like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think we, wow. I mean, all, all I knew is like, it's like the tissue sent out yeah. and it may, it may be uncomfortable or even painful, but you can just treat it with, wow. um, with topical estrogen. No. And, and, and you're, yeah. And, and you're being asked to make, to, to make this decision to, to somehow consent as if you can consent at 13 years old yeah, to that was, level of intervention. I was a kid. I wasn't, I never had a relationship before. I wasn't yeah. sexually active or anything. Yeah. So I wouldn't know yeah. what that really means. No. And I mean, that's something that starts for most women after they hit menopause, which usually happens 
after as early as 40 decades later yeah yeah wow <clears throat> wow so eventually i know you i was barely into my teenhood wow and, and you and you you said so you went through the puberty blockers then you get on the testosterone and then the next thing you do is top surgery is that, yeah. is that right so what what led up to that that decision and what went into that yeah so at school i didn't really talk to very many people about transitioning i just kind of did it mm -hmm. silently and people noticed i mean by by the time i was in my eighth grade year like i would i didn't have long hair anymore and i was like i looked completely different i was trying to copy the mannerisms of hmm. the other male students mm -hmm. and uh not very many people knew that I was actually transitioning, but uh, I did get uh, bullied for it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I uh, I got called a lot of names. People assumed like I was like a I was like a lesbian or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't really have very many many friends that year. And there was one particular person who was picking on me throughout the school year. But uh, a few months after I started testosterone. I wasn't, I wasn't like covering up my chest yet. I just kind of okay. like wore like loose shirts and sweatshirts yeah. and just to like hope that nobody noticed. Yeah. But one day this kid in the classroom just went up to me and he, uh, he assaulted me. Wow. And before this point in time, I never really cared about my, my chest. I mean, I didn't want, I didn't like that. It was, that is visible, but, uh, that was when I started feeling like I have to hide this part of me from the world. I don't want this to happen to me ever again. And I don't want anybody to ever know that I was a girl. And so I started biting. And um, that's, when I, that's when I asked my uh, to, to buy some, some bindings for the first time. And I never, I never told any, any adults about this until much later. In including your parents? Yeah, I mean, oh. it was scary to talk about. I don't know how, how I would even start that conversation. Yeah. I don't really trust, I wasn't particularly close to any of the adults in my life at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Not the, not my parents, not my siblings, uh, not my teachers or school staff. And at that school, I was, I was getting treated poorly, even by staff. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt like I couldn't trust them. And, um, like, I knew, like, they're probably just going to give this kid a slap on the wrist. And when he comes back from school, it could, it could just, it could, it could get worse. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with that. And I also saw it as, like, I mean, I'm trying to be a boy. So I need to just man up. Wow. I'm so sorry. So so you eventually go through with the double mastectomy then? Yeah. Talk about that experience. So uh, after I went to high school, by, by the one time that I was in my freshman year, I was on hormones for a few months. And I mean, I had a pretty deep voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked like any other boy my age. <laughs> So nobody knew other than people like I, that I went to elementary school or middle school with. Mm -hmm. 
and even then there were a lot of people who didn't recognize me, but uh, I just went through my uh, my first three years of high school as a boy, mostly undetected or stealth as they call it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I started to get progressively worse. Yeah. Um, you know, all my friends were getting into relationships with each other. Most of them were either straight, some of them were lesbians, but uh, I looked like a boy, sounded like a boy, acted like a boy, but I was still attracted to to guys. <laughs> and how did that make you feel then as you were think as you were processing that? I didn't really understand how big of the problem this would be, mm-hmm. but it was very lonely for me. I felt like in a lot of ways I was behind my peers. Okay. And I just, I grew increasing, increasingly lonely and just, uh, I resented myself a lot. I felt like there was something wrong with me. Yeah. Wow. And um, in my sophomore year, I was diagnosed with, uh, with social anxiety and depression. And uh, it was bad enough for them to decide, well, let's put you on medication for all this. Mm-hmm. And uh, about halfway through my sophomore year was when I started thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm getting sick of binding. I mean, I live in a super hot area of California. I have to like, mm-hmm. not only am I wearing like a, like t-shirts and hoodies and stuff, but I also have to wear this uncomfortable Profession advice under all that. And uh, mm-hmm. I live in a pretty hot area. I mean, it gets to like 115 odds in the worst days. Yes. So I grew sick of binding and I I thought of myself as just like any other boy my age. And I wanted my appearance to reflect that. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to keep wearing this thing mm-hmm. to maintain that illusion. And so I started seeking uh, surgery. And uh, through another gender specialist, I was referred to a surgeon. And uh, about six months after that, I uh, was when I actually went under the knife. Wow. Bam. Wow. And what was that like? <clears throat> um, I mean, when I initially woke up from the surgery, once all like the the meds were off mm-hmm. and like I was fully conscious and I knew what was happening, mm-hmm. I was happy. Like I was really, I was really glad that this was over and that I uh, got through what I saw this as this huge milestone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was looking forward to finally being being all healed up and being able to to go out shirtless and swim shirtless and just not to wear this uncomfortable thing around me. Yeah. Have an initial euphoria, like yeah. a feeling. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it started to go away pretty soon after though, cause uh, for the sake of the, the healing process and the, uh, the incisions and stitches, mm-hmm. I couldn't shower or bathe for about a week, wow. but uh, after, after a few days, I had to return to the hospital and uh, have my stitches taken out. Mm-hmm. 
And that was one of the first things that woke me up to the reality of this. Hmm. My, I couldn't really describe the sensation. I mean, it was like, it was numb, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I could feel everything. It was painless, but it was really unnatural. Hmm. Like, like something was missing. Yeah. Um, I mean, they had to like sever some nerve endings and uh, and doing a mastectomy, obviously. But uh, the the way they they did it was. Uh, I had to get the most common incision type, which means uh, it's called double mastectomy with nipple grafts, meaning that they cut into the breast and they uh, they take out the tissue and then they scrape out an area of skin on the chest mm -hmm. and uh, they like excise around the uh, the areolas and they basically take them out and just into that put them into that area of uh, of scraped skin. Wow, it's pretty barbaric yeah but wow and you were 16 yeah i was i was 15 actually 15 yeah i i, I just want to pause on that because you you've gone through all of this already i mean not let set aside everything you've been through physically just emotionally you've described for us everything everything you've been through up to this point then on top of that you you've been you've had puberty stopped you're on testosterone and you've gone through this surgery that you said, I mean, it is barbaric. Yeah. All by the time you're 15 years old. Yeah. Wow. 15 going on 16. But just looking down and like seeing what was happening, mm -hmm. but also just not feeling like everything was in place. It actually made me physically sick. Like I had to stop a few times during the during the procedure. Yeah. And after that, when I uh, when I went home, that was when I started having to uh, to bathe again, like take care of like all the incisions mm -hmm. and do the wound aftercare. Mm -hmm. And it was it was hard to look down at my chest like that. I mean, there are these just big wounds stretched across my chest. Wow. And I would have to look at that every night and just do it all on my own. Um, and shortly after this was when I started realizing that there were a lot of things that I missed about being a girl. Mm -hmm. I, I missed feeling more connected to my friends and family. Mm -hmm. I missed being able to express myself more, especially emotionally. Yeah. And having a, my, my relationships just weren't as close or satisfying anymore. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that I felt like I couldn't talk about. And I'm sure that was a combination of the just I mean just every everything you've been through but then also I know that being on testosterone can actually change your your chemical makeup so, I mean I, li I literally change yeah, chemical I mean, makeup but it's play a role in yeah pretty much every function pretty, yeah. every, every area of the body yeah so I'm sure that that had to contribute yeah to it, it made it harder to cry 
and it also made crying less rewarding, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Wow. So sometimes I would like cry for hours on end and I just wouldn't feel anything other than empty. But I also, I miss being pretty. I missed having long hair. I miss being able to, to play with makeup and wear cute clothes. Yeah. But by this one time, I was like, I was nearly three years on testosterone. Yeah. And I didn't look like a girl. I didn't sound like a girl. And everybody knew me as a boy. Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't really, uh, couldn't do that, obviously, without a, What's the word? Not like backlash, but I would get a lot of crap for it, mm-hmm. especially for my friends. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't look right. What was the point then at which you actually started thinking to yourself, maybe I need to, what was the point at which detransition even started to cross your mind? Um, by that point in time, I started to experiment a little bit with my own with like clothing and how I presented myself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I like dyed my hair, started growing it out a little bit, but at school I wouldn't really wear anything. I wouldn't like wear makeup and uh, I would just wear my regular clothes. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was uh, this was during COVID, so I had the comfort. Mm. I saw it as a comfort at the time of being able to just uh, do the, be, be at home or like when I would go to school, just like wear a mask and like cover up my face because right. I hated my face. I hated how I looked. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really ashamed of this, but in private at home, I would just like wear my old girl clothes and sometimes I would like buy makeup from the drugstore and put it on, but I wouldn't let anybody see that as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until... Uh, in my junior year, when um, I was taking a psychology class, mm-hmm. that I was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And the trigger for me was, uh, towards the end of the unit, there were lessons on like uh, parenting, child development, and uh, just stuff of that sort. And it was the first time like, I really thought like I might want to have a family one day mm. and um, I'm on these treatments that might disrupt that and I won't ever know what it's like to breastfeed a child and that was really what what woke me up because I, I just couldn't take it anymore I I felt awful I felt like even if I would be able to conceive a child, like I just took something from them and from myself. Yeah. Was there anyone before that moment, you know, as you were talking with endocrinologists, as you were talking with surgeons, was there anyone who, who mentioned that aspect of it, who said, you might not be able to have children or just a reminder, if we do a double mastectomy, you won't be able to breastfeed. Yeah, I mean, endocrinologists, endocrinologists did told me, did tell me that um, this could affect my ability to have kids. And probably- and I, was, I was, I was, 
I wasn't thinking about that. I was yeah. a kid. Yes. And I didn't know, obviously, that I would lose my ability to breastfeed after mm-hmm. they, uh, like, severed the uh, the stalk of the, uh, the nipple and uh, removed my breast tissue. But I was in the mindset of actually being a male. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any man thinks about breastfeeding children, <laughs> right? <laughs> No, no. And, and you were, you were 13, 14, 15 as all of this is going on. Yep. And, and that's just not something the normal 15 year old is sitting around thinking about, boy, I can't wait to breastfeed my children. That's just because you're 15. And, and yet here are these, here are these doctors. Oh yeah. She was saying it's okay. It's, it's totally okay. She knows. Yeah. She knows what she wants. Wow. We are so glad you're enjoying Conversations with Craig. Your experience doesn't have to stop here. To stay connected with other listeners, hear about current events affecting your family, and to share pictures and videos with your friends, follow Family Policy Alliance on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out the links in the show notes, and we'll see you online. So you finally decide, you're starting to kind of casually detransition at home. What was the point at which you finally said, I'm I'm going to be more open about this? And then what was the point at which you just you started speaking out and sharing your story? Um I mean I was starting to wear like become more open to uh, presenting myself femininely. Mm-hmm. But there was there was one night when I just I just broke down crying. I was really upset, and uh, that was when it really started to set in the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't face my parents like that. I I called a friend of mine. I called and texted my mom about it, but I didn't want to. I didn't want my mom or dad to see me like that. I didn't want them to to see their own their own daughter with her tears just streaming down her face like that, and I knew like they would they would feel guilty. Mm-hmm. They, this was something that they had to sign off on, and it was it was on the pretense that it would help me, and that I knew what I was getting into, yeah. but I didn't, and it didn't help at all. And I didn't want to put that on them. Hmm. And for the next few weeks after that, it was just like, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, I mean, COVID basically destroyed all my relationships at school. So I wasn't really talking with anybody from school, but uh, sure. I was in a few communities online, including some, a lot of them involved like a lot of uh, other transgender people hmm. but when I talked about my regret hmm. and how I hated how it made me look and and feel mm-hmm. and how I just felt used by my doctors mm-hmm. I got a lot of crap from other transgender people wow and sometimes people who call themselves allies but had no experience with wow. with transitioning at all I was called I was called a turf. I was called a transphobe. I was told like 
I wasn't ever a real transgender person and I just took resources from the people who needed it and that I shouldn't be talking about this. Which is just incredible coming from a movement that is is so okay with people changing in one direction. Yep. So affirming, so excited for people to change in one direction. But if they decide, no, they're going to change back in the other direction, suddenly right. that's how you're treated. You're pushed out. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you you obviously started just started sharing this online then. Did you ever come across any of the, the detransitioner community that's developed online during yeah. this time? Yeah, before I started uh, speaking out publicly, I, as much as I wanted to talk about my own experience on like my personal social media, mm -hmm. um, I was just getting harassed too much and I couldn't take it. Yeah. So I did, I did stay, stay quiet about it for a little bit, but, uh, I was starting to like uh, research detransition, and I found some. Uh, excuse me, I found some like online online spaces that um people who um that were centered around like people who read their transitions and uh, were actually like, harmed by transition or um, yeah are question like were questioning or. Um, never actually went through with it, but are either curious or desisted. Yeah. And um, I started to have my views challenged by these people. Mm -hmm. And it just having another perspective on what happened to me, <laughs> it really did help me to, to piece things together that I was lied to by my doctors and also by this whole community of people. Yeah. And that there were many more people like me than I had ever realized. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't even know that I didn't even know that detransition was a possibility. Yeah. It was never it was never brought up during the uh during the appointments. Wow. But uh Wow. I didn't even know the word until that happened to me, right? Yes. Yeah. But, uh, And that community, yeah. that's just growing online too. I, I mean, I remember looking up, I, I know there's a big Reddit thread um, of, of detransitioners. And I remember looking at that a couple of years ago and I, I don't know, there were maybe a couple thousand. And then I looked again a few months ago it's and it, it just exploded, just completely exploded because there are so many people who, like you said, whether they, they're actually have detransitioned or thinking about detransitioning or questioning whether they should transition in the first place they're they're asking these questions because they're realizing what you realized that the industry that's pushing this is using people mm -hmm. and putting children under the knife forcing them to go through um incredibly harmful things before they're even an age that they can drive before they're even an age that they can drink get a tattoo and people are people are realizing this and even if they weren't like even in the cases where these kids aren't being forced, like either by a doctor or a parent, yeah, they're still letting the kid take the wheel. Mm -hmm. Like it's just as responsible as giving kid alcohol in a car and just saying, "Here you go, do what you want with this." Yes, and saying the kid wanted it. Yeah, <laughs> the kid wanted the vodka. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, I was mostly talking to adults by this point. Mm -hmm. 
Hootie transition, mm-hmm. but I knew like there has to be somebody out there my age mm-hmm. who is going through what I did. Yeah. And somebody needs to start speaking up about it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that eventually I I would want to, mm-hmm. but I, for a while, I, I just didn't feel quite ready. Mm-hmm. I still, uh, I was still in school and, um, I didn't have I didn't have any friends by the point that I was in my senior year, mm-hmm. and I was really struggling, and I didn't quite feel ready to take such a big responsibility yet. But um, last year, um, I made a Twitter account, mm-hmm. and <coughs> excuse me, I at first I I just used it for personal purposes, and I didn't really take it that that seriously. But I realized like. I could use this as a platform mm-hmm. to talk about my experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, that's, that's where it all started. And that's what you've done. Yeah. And now you've been st- sharing your story all over the place. We were talking before you came in here about it. just how, how crazy it's been because you've been traveling all over the place telling this story. Um, it's something, something I noticed as I was, as I was thinking about talking with you is that, so you started, you, you started your transition in 2017 and that I, I just think this is a cool parallel. So in 2017 was the first year that um, Family Policy Alliance actually drafted legislation um, to protect kids from these transition procedures. So we drafted it at, at the same time as you're starting this. 2021 is when you start detransitioning, right? And that's the first year that one of these actually passes. And it's what like, month? it was in April, I think. That was March, March, March or April. That was a month before I stopped transitioning. Wow. Just the, those timelines. I just think that's incredible. It's like your story is kind of this, this parallel with what was going on in the broader culture, because it was, uh, it makes perfect sense. That it's around that time that you're also being, you're starting to detransition because I think that's when things were really starting to get rolling within that movement. Mm. Um, this is right after we had the Obergefell decision right after Caitlyn Jenner, right after Jazz Jennings, all of that had just happened in yeah. the last couple of years. So it was kind of this peak moment you start transitioning. We introduce legislation a few years later. Now the first, now the first law actually passes. You start detransitioning. Yeah. The funny thing is, I didn't have any exposure. To that. I didn't know yeah. that any of that was happening. Wow. And I was, I was in California in the middle of all this, so I was just blissfully unaware. But and, I don't know if that's really bliss, honestly. Well, right, <laughs> right. But I think that's actually interesting that you had no idea mm. that this broader cultural thing is going on. You're just sort of a, a yeah at that at that point it's trickled all the way down to a 12, 13 year old girl. Like yeah. that's how, that's how far it had gotten. But now here, here we are 20, 2021, this, this first law passes. When did you become aware of the kind of the legal and political efforts to protect kids like yourself? Um, well, I mean, over the years I would, uh, from posts online, I would see like, Oh, these transphobic bills are trying to take away life-saving health care from right. transgender people and trans kids and stuff like that. But right. I was kind of by the community standards privilege because I didn't have to deal with that yeah. in, the, in the health state that is California. But right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I never really paid any mind to it, and I don't know how widespread it was. Until I started speaking out, actually, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, after I had uh, reporters reaching out to me and uh, reporting on my story. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I had like a people reaching out, like, "Hey, would you uh, mind coming out and testify on this bill?" Mm-hmm. And and you have done that. And you've been you've been testifying all over the place. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we were talking about this. Um, you know, we we've been involved in lots of that legislation, and I'm, I'm hearing from state folks that you're just you're doing a wonderful job sharing your story making speaking out very courageously what is that experience like when when you go there and, and you testify what, what t- t- I, I don't think a lot of people can relate to that experience at all so what has that been like the first few times it was uh it was kind of nerve-wracking i didn't get to actually testify in uh in the hearing the first time mm-hmm. and that was kind of that was a little disappointing mm-hmm. but uh I went to like a private conference room and about to speak to legislators. That was pretty okay. cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those first three testimonies were really, uh, really uh, hard. I wouldn't say. Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't. Uh, I'd never really been. I'd never really done any public speaking before. Yeah. I mean, it was it was hard enough for me in school to like present like a group project, mm-hmm. but now here you are presenting to lawmakers. <laughs> yeah, just like a jump straight into adulthood. Yes, that's but right. It's it's gotten a lot easier over time. Yeah, but uh, it's it's still difficult in a lot of ways. So I travel quite frequently. Yeah, and, uh, I'm not as healthy as I would like to be. I can't really work out on a schedule like this mm-hmm. and it's hard to come by like good food while you're traveling mm. and on top of that I do have like uh allergies mostly like skin allergies and traveling around just going to different environments so frequently does kind of trigger that mm-hmm. but other than that I mean I really enjoy doing this it's that's great it's kind of a roller coaster of emotions but it's really fun yeah and it's nice just after feeling so alone and feeling like my my voice has been stifled for so long, it's nice being able to get it out there mm-hmm. and to advocate not only for myself but for other people in the situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know that so many people, whether it's whether it's the lawmakers who are working on this or the or other other detransitioners who haven't spoken out or don't just you know don't feel like they're in a position to do that, are so grateful for you doing that. I'm grateful for you doing that. I'd love for you to maybe share a word of encouragement back. So there's there's lawmakers, as you know, you've probably seen. I mean, they're getting heckled. They, I'm, I'm sure you've you've experienced some of that. Um, you you mentioned the articles saying these transphobes are are doing these terrible things to kids. <laughs> and um, now I'm in those articles. And now you're no, in the trans. Now you are in those articles. Yes. And um, I, I, you know, we we host a family policy alliance, so we host a network of 40 state groups, and many of them are the ones that are working on this legislation. What encouragement do you have for them or for the people who are supporting them and, and, and cheering them on as, as they're working on this legislation? I mean, I know a lot of people from all sorts of, of, back, of backgrounds mm. who very strongly oppose this, mm. but they're scared to speak out because all, either because of social stigma, especially those in younger generations, mm-hmm. or out of fear of losing their jobs. Yeah. But I don't I really don't think that there's any excuse not to speak out on this. Yeah. Real friends will stick with you. 
and you can always freshen up your resume. I mean, I guess it's kind of easy for, for me to say, but it's our kids that are on the line. And they need everybody around them to advocate for them. Mm-hmm. It's this attitude of, oh, I, I can't speak out on this. I don't feel qualified to speak out on this. Or, well, it's just so ridiculous. Like, there's no way this can affect me or my family or my community. Mm-hmm. That has allowed to fest, that has allowed this to fester for so long. And we can't let it any longer. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to share or make sure we talk about? Is there anything that you feel like you haven't touched on? I don't think so. Here, I have a question list. Let's make sure. Got it all. Um, well, what, one last question. <laughs> is, is there any encouragement you would have for those who, I guess it's really two groups of people, but for those who um, like you, I have um, have detransitioned, are detransitioning, and then an encouragement for those who are are in the process of transitioning or have friends and family going through that. Any any words of encouragement or advice for either of those? Well, my advice for other detransitioners, I know a lot of people who are who have just gone off of hormones within like the past year. Mm-hmm. And that first year is really rough, especially as your body is trying to readjust. Mm-hmm. And uh, just going through all the hormonal fluctuations, and especially for the people who are post-op and can't produce their own hormones, having to go on artificial hormones is, it can be a trigger, especially after years of being on such treatments. But it gets so much better. It gets so much easier to deal with as time goes on. And... I'm thinking of a, of a way to say this that isn't that isn't scary. No matter what's been taken from you, I mean, there's still so much left, and there always will be. So it's best to keep pushing. That's beautiful. As hard as it may be. My advice for uh, a little more advice for other detransitioners, though, and your sisters, would be. I mean, the social aspect of detransitioning is really difficult. Mm. It's it's very shameful to admit that decision that you made, especially such a life changing decision such as transitioning. Was, was was wrong and didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably lose a lot of friends, maybe even some family, but I think as difficult as it is, that that is a good thing, that it helps you vet who is really on your side. Mm. And it's important. I mean, the only support groups for us right now are pretty much all online, but it's important to try and make friends, to connect with people, mm-hmm. to work with people within your own community mm-hmm. in the real world. That's that's really what what got me through this. And for 
family or friend or friends of somebody who is transitional. <laughs> I would say to keep fighting for them, to, to try and have an honest conversation about this mm -hmm. without sugarcoating, but also without, uh, It's important to let you know that they are they are loved without um without pushing them too harshly one way or another and just to to give them the support and the information that they deserve but might not be getting yeah well we're a christian organization and we really believe that the lord redeems our stories and you know there can be incredible incredible pain in our, our past and incredibly hard things that we walked through and i think you're just an example of how the lord is is redeeming that and is saying i'm actually going to use that story for good and i'm actually going to use that story to make a difference to protect other kids to encourage other people who are walking through the same thing That's so how I feel. i'm i'm really thankful for you sharing your story chloe Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We good? Can we do an outro here? Um, sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, I could do it. <laughs> can you wing it? Yeah, I have to think, think about that. Um, well, at Family Policy Alliance, we are so grateful for the stories that Chloe shared with us today and for the people like her who are courageously sharing these stories. These things aren't easy to share. But they're making a difference. You know, kids who are going through this deserve real help, but not the harm, not the harm of hormones and surgeries and the regret that comes with that. And uh, we've seen Help Not Harm legislation now starting to pass around the country. We're so encouraged by that. And that's in large part due to the courageous voice of people like Chloe Cole. Conversations with Craig is brought to you by Family Policy Alliance. Our vision is a nation where God is honored, religious freedom flourishes, families thrive, and life is cherished.